You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 233A, entitled Rosicrucianism and Modern Initiation, translated by Mary Adams and Frederick Amrine. This is Lecture 4, given in Dornach, on the 11th of January, 1924. What I have been telling you in recent lectures requires a little further elaboration. I have tried to give you a picture of how spiritual knowledge took its course through the centuries and of the form it has assumed in recent times. I have shown you how from the 15th century until the end of the 18th and even on into the beginning of the 19th, the spiritual knowledge which before that period was present to us as clear and concrete, albeit instinctive, manifested more in a devotion of heart and soul to the spirit in the world. We have seen how a real knowledge of nature and of how the spiritual world works in nature is still unmistakably present in the 11th, 12th, and 13th centuries. In Agrippa of Nettesheim, for example, whom I have described in my book titled Mystics After Modernism, We have a personality who still knew quite well that in the planets of our solar system are spiritual beings of a specific character and kind. In his writings, Agrippa of Nettesheim assigns to each single planet what he calls the intelligence and then what he calls the daimon of the planet. This points to traditions which were extant from older times, and were even in his days still something more than traditions. To look up to a planet in the way that became customary in the later astronomy and is still customary today would have been quite impossible for someone like Agrippa of Nettesheim. For him the external planet, nay, every single star, was no more than a sign, an announcement, so to say, of the presence of spiritual beings to whom we could look up with the I-E-Y-E of the soul when we turned our gaze in the direction of the star. And Agrippa of Nettesheim knew that the beings who are united with the single stars are beings who rule the inner existence of that star or planet, rule also its movements in the universe, hold sway indeed over its whole activity. And he called such beings the intelligence of the star. Agrippa knew at the same time how hindering beings are at work there, beings who undermined the good deeds of the star, working both from the star and also into it. These beings he called the daimon of the star, and together with this knowledge went an understanding of the earth that saw in the earth also a heavenly body, having its intelligence and its daimon. This understanding of sidereal intelligence and sidereal demonology, with all its implications, has been completely lost. Let us look for a moment at what it implied. The earth was looked upon as ruled in her inner activity, in her movements in the cosmos, by a group of intelligences 
whom we could bring together under the name of, quote, the intelligence of the earth star, close quote. But what, for the people of Agrippa's time, was the intelligence of the earth star? It is exceedingly difficult today even to speak of these things, because our ideas have traveled so very far away from what was accepted as a matter of course in those times by persons of insight and understanding. The intelligence of the earth star was ourselves. People of those times saw in humans beings who had received a task, a mission, from the spirituality of the worlds, not merely as we moderns imagine to walk about on the earth, to travel over it by train, to buy and sell, to write books and so forth and so forth. No, they looked upon humans as beings to whom the world spirit is given the task of ruling and regulating the earth, of bringing, as it were, law and order into all that has to do with the place of the earth and the cosmos. Their conception of the human was expressed by saying, through what we are, through the forces and powers we bear within our being. Humans give to the earth the impulse for her movement around the sun, for her movement altogether in cosmic space. In those days there was still a feeling for this. It was known that such a task had once been allotted to human beings. The world spirituality had really made humans the lords of the earth. But in the course of our evolution, humans had not shown themselves equal to the task. We had fallen from our high estate. When we are speaking of knowledge nowadays, it is seldom indeed that we can catch even a last echo of this view. What we find in religious belief concerning the fall goes back ultimately to this conception. For there the point is that originally humans had quite another status on the earth and in the universe, that we had in fact fallen from our high estate. But apart from this religious conception, wherever we think we have attained knowledge by correct methods of thought, it is only here and there that we may still find today an echo of the ancient knowledge that once proceeded from instinctive clairvoyance, and that was well aware of humanity's true calling and of our fall into our present narrow limitations. It may happen, for example, that we are having a conversation with a person, I am here relating a fact, who has thought very deeply, who has also acquired a deep knowledge of spiritual matters. The conversation turns on whether humans, as we stand on earth today, are really creatures who are self-contained, who carry their whole being within them, and such a person will say to you that this cannot be. We must, in reality, be far more comprehensive beings. Otherwise we could not have the striving we have now. We could not develop the great idealism of which we can see such fine and lofty examples. In our true nature, we must be a great and comprehensive being who has, somehow or other, committed a cosmic sin, as a consequence of which we have been banished within the limits of this present earthly existence, so that today we are really imprisoned, as it were, in a cage. You may still meet here and there a stray survivor, as it were, of this view. 
But speaking generally, where shall we find a qualified scientist giving serious attention to these great and far-reaching questions? And yet it is only by facing such questions that we can ever find our way to an existence worthy of ourselves as human. Then it was really so. Humans were regarded as the bearers of the intelligence of the earth. But now such a person as Agrippa of Netisheim ascribed to the earth also a daimon. When we go back to the 12th or 13th century, we find this daimon of the earth to be a being who could only become what he did become on earth, because he found in humans ready tools for his activities. In order to understand this, we must acquaint ourselves with the way people thought in those days about the relationship of the earth to the sun, or rather of earthly humans to the sun, S-U-N. And if I am now to describe how they understood this relationship, then I must again speak in imaginations, for these things will not suffer themselves to be confined to abstract concepts. Abstract concepts came later and they are very far from being able to span the truth. We must therefore begin here to speak in pictures, in imaginations. I have described in my book titled The Secret Doctrine how the sun separated itself from the earth, or we might say separated the earth from itself. But the sun, you must remember, is the original abode of humanity. Ever since the time of Saturn, Humanity has been united with the whole planetary system, including the sun. We humans do not have our home on the earth, but rather only a temporary resting place. We are in reality, according to the view that prevailed in those olden times, beings of the sun. In our whole nature and existence, we are united with the sun. And we ought, as humans, as solar beings, to have had an altogether different relationship to the earth. What should have happened is that the earth, first of all, should obey her impulse to bring forth out of the mineral and plant kingdoms the human seed in etheric form, and the sun should then fructify the seed. Then should raise the etheric human form which, by establishing its own relationship to the physical substances of the earth, should then take on earthly substantiality. The contemporaries of Agrippa of Netisheim, Agrippa's own knowledge was unfortunately somewhat clouded, but better contemporaries of his really did hold the view that humans ought not to be born in the earthly way they are now, but ought to come to being in their etheric body through the interworking of sun and earth. And then, Going about on the earth as an etheric being, we are to give ourselves earthly form. The seeds of humanity should grow up out of the earth with the purity of vegetable life, appearing here and there as ethereal fruits, darkly gleaming. These should then in a certain season of the year be overshone by the light of the sun and thereby assume human form, but still etheric. Then humanity should draw to itself physical substance, not from the body of the mother, but from the earth and all that is thereon, incorporating physical substance into ourselves from the kingdoms of the earth. That, in their view, should have been the manner of humanity's appearance on earth, 
in accordance with the purposes of the cosmic spirituality. The development that came later was attributed to the fact that humanity had allowed to awaken within itself too deep an urge, too intense a desire for the earthly and material. Thereby we forfeited our connection with the sun and the cosmos and could only find our existence on earth in the form of the stream of inheritance. And that gave opportunity for the daimon of the earth to begin his work. The daimon of the earth would not have been able to do anything with humans who were born of the sun. Humans born of the sun on earth would have been in very truth the fourth hierarchy. If we were wanting to place humans, we would have to say first hierarchy, seraphim, cherubim, thrones, second hierarchy, exousiae, dunamis, curiatites, third hierarchy, angels, archangels, archai, fourth hierarchy, humanity, three different stages or gradations of the human forming together the fourth hierarchy. But because we gave rein to our strong impulses in the direction of the physical, we became not the being on the lowest branch, as it were, of the hierarchies, but instead the being at the summit, on the topmost branch of the kingdoms of the earth. Mineral kingdom, vegetable kingdom, animal kingdom, human kingdom. This became the picture of how humans stood in the world. Moreover, because humanity has not found its proper task on the earth, the earth herself does not have her right and worthy position in the cosmos. For since humanity has fallen, the true Lord of the earth is not there. What has happened? The true Lord of the earth is lacking, and it has become necessary for her place and course in the cosmos not being regulated from the earth herself to be regulated from the sun. Thus tasks that should really be carried out on earth have fallen to the sun. Someone of medieval times would look up to the sun and say, in the sun are certain intelligences. They determine the movement of the earth in the cosmos. They govern what happens on the earth. Humans ought, in reality, to do this. The solar forces ought to work on earth through humanity. Hence that significant medieval conception that was expressed in the words the sun, the unlawful prince of this world. And now reflect, my dear friends, how infinitely such conceptions deepen for the people of the Middle Ages their feeling for the Christ impulse. Christ became for them the spirit who did not want to find his further task on the sun who was unwilling to remain among those who directed the earth in an unlawful manner from without. He wanted to take his way from the sun to the earth, to enter into human destiny and into the destiny of earth, to experience earthly events, to follow the path of earth evolution, sharing the lot of humanity and of the earth. Therewith, for medieval people, the Christ was the being, the one being, who saved for the cosmos humanity's task on earth. There you have the connection. 
And now you can see why in Rosicrucian times, again and again it was impressed upon the pupil, quote, O human, thou art not what thou art. Christ had to come to take from thee thy task, that he might perform it for thee. Close quote. A great deal in Goethe's title Faust has come over from medieval conceptions, although Goethe himself did not understand this. Recall, my dear friends, how Faust conjures up the earth spirit. With these medieval conceptions in mind, we can enter with feeling and understanding into the way this earth spirit speaks. Quote, in the tides of life, in action's storm, a fluctuant wave, a shuttle free, birth and the grave, an eternal sea, a weaving, flowing life, all glowing, thus at times humming loom, tis my hand, prepares the garment of life which the deity wears. For who is it really that Faust is conjuring up? Goethe himself, when he was writing Faust, most assuredly did not fully comprehend. But if we go back from Goethe to the medieval Faust, in whom Rosicrucian wisdom was living, If we listen in on this medieval Faust, this listening teaches us that Faust also wanted to conjure up the spirit. And who was it he wanted to conjure up? He never spoke of the earth spirit. He spoke rather of the human being. The longing and striving of medieval people was to be human. For they felt in the depths of their soul that as an earthly creature they were not truly human. How can humanity be found again? The way Faust is rebuffed, is pushed aside by the earth spirit, is a picture of how humans and their earthly form are repelled by their own being. And this is why many histories of, how should I call it, conversion to Christianity in the Middle Ages show such an extraordinary depth of character. They are filled with the sense that individuals have striven to attain the humanity that has been lost, and have had to give up in despair, having rightly despaired of being able to find in themselves, within earthly physical life, true and genuine personhood. And so they have come to the point where they have to say, our striving for true humanity must be abandoned. Earthly humanity must leave it to Christ to fulfill the task of the earth. In this time in human history when our relationship to true humanity as well as our relationship to Christ was still understood in what might be called supra-personal, personal manner, in this time knowledge of the Spirit and vision of the Spirit were still real things. They were still a matter of experience. It ceased to be so with the 15th century. Then came that stupendous change which no one has really understood. Those, however, who have knowledge of such things are aware of how in the 15th to 16th centuries and even later there existed a Rosicrucian school, isolated, scarcely known to the world, where again and again a few pupils were educated and where, above all, care was taken that one thing should not be forgotten but preserved as a holy tradition. This holy tradition was as follows. 
I will give it to you in narrative form. Let us say a new pupil arrived one day at some such lonely spot to receive preparation. The first thing to be set before them was the so-called Ptolemaic system, in its true form, as it had been handed down from olden times, not in the trivial way it is explained nowadays as something that has long ago been supplanted, but in an altogether different way. The pupil was shown how the earth really and truly bears within herself the forces that are needed to determine her path through the universe. So that to a correct picture of the world it has to be drawn in the old Ptolemaic sense, the earth for us in the center of the universe, and the other stars controlled and directed in their corresponding revolutions by the earth. And the neophyte was told, if you really study to find what are the best forces in the earth, then you can arrive at no other conception of the world than this. In actual fact, however, it is not so. It is not so on account of human sin. Through human sin, the earth has gone over in an unjustifiable manner into the realm of the sun. The sun has become the regent and ruler of earthly activities. And so over against the solar system given by the gods with the earth in, in the center, there has now been set another paradigm that, that has the sun in the center and the earth revolving around the sun, the paradigm, that is, of Copernicus. And then it was vouchsafed to the neophyte that here a cosmic mistake has been caused by human sin. This was the knowledge entrusted to the neophyte, and he had to engrave it deeply into his heart and soul. We have overthrown the old paradigm, the teacher would say, and set another in its place. And they do not know that this other is the outcome of their own guilt, is really nothing else than the expression, the revelation of human guilt. While all the time they are imagining it to be the right and correct view of the cosmos. And what has happened in recent times? The teacher would go on to say, Science has suffered a downfall through human guilt. Science has become a science of the daimonic. About the end of the 18th century, such communications became impossible. But until that time, there were always at least a few pupils here and there who received their spiritual nourishment in some lonely Rosicrucian school. They received it with feeling, as a knowledge of the heart. Even such a man, for example, as the great philosopher Leibniz, was led by his own thought and deliberation to try to find somewhere a place of learning where he could arrive at a correct conception of the relationship between the Copernican and Ptolemaic systems, but he was not able to discover any such place. Such things need to be known if we are to understand aright, in all its shades of meaning, the great change that has come about in the last centuries, in the way we look on ourselves and the universe. And with this weakening of our living connection with ourselves, with this estrangement of humans from themselves, came afterward the tendency to cling to the external intellect that today rules all. Think for a moment, this external intellect 
Is it really human experience? Not by any means. Were it human experience, it could not live so externally in us as it does. The intellect really has no sort of connection with what is individual and personal. We could almost call it a convention. It does not spring from inner human experience. Rather, it approaches us as something external. You can feel how external the intellect has become if you compare the way in which Aristotle imparted his logic to his pupils with the way in which it was taught much later, say in the 17th century. According to Kant, logic had not progressed since Aristotle. In the time of Aristotle, logic was still thoroughly human. When someone was taught to think logically, he had a feeling as though, if I may be allowed to express myself again in imaginative terms, as though he were dipping his head into cold water and thereby becoming estranged from himself for a moment. Or else he had a feeling such as Alexander expressed when Aristotle wanted to impart logic to him, You are pressing together all the bones of my head. Logic was felt as something external. By the 17th century, this externality was taken as a matter of course. They learned how from the major and minor premises the consequent must be deduced. They learned what we find treated so ironically in Goethe's Faust, The first was so, the second so, Therefore the third and fourth are so. Were not the first and second, then the third and fourth had never been. There will your mind be drilled and braced, as if in Spanish boots twere laced. Whether, like Alexander, we feel the bones of our heads pressed together, or whether with all this quote, first, second, third, fourth, close quote, we feel laced up in Spanish boots, We have each time a picture of the same experience. But this externality of abstract thought was no longer experienced in the time when logic began to be taught in the schools. Today, of course, this has for the most part ceased. Logic is no longer a subject in the curriculum. It is rather as if there had once been a time when hundreds of people had been ordered to put on the same uniform and had done it with enthusiasm. And then later on came a time when they went on doing that of their own accord, without giving it a thought. But now, during all the time when the logic of the abstract was gaining the upper hand, the old spiritual knowledge could not flourish. Even spiritual knowledge becomes external. Assuming a form of which examples are to be found in the writings of Eliphas Levi or in the publications of St. Martin. Such writings are the last offshoots of the old spiritual knowledge and vision. What do we find in a book like Eliphas Levi's titled The Dogma and Ritual of High Magic? In the first place, there are all manner of signs, triangles, pentagrams, and so forth. Then there are words from languages that were in use in bygone ages, especially from the Hebrew. And what in earlier times was life as well as knowledge and could pass over into our deeds and our ideas, this we find has on the one hand become bereft of ideas and on the other hand degenerated into external magic. 
There is speculation as to the symbolic meaning of this or that sign, concerning all of which we moderns, if we are honest, are obliged to confess we can see nothing. Allusion is made to horrible practices connected with all manner of rites. While those who spoke in favor of these rites and frequently practiced them were far from having any notion at all of their spiritual connection. Such books are invariably pointers to what was once understood in olden times, was once an inward experience of knowledge. But at the time when Eliphaz Levi, for example, was writing his books, was no longer understood. As for St. Martin, you can read what I have written about him in Title Dasgertianum. Thus we see how what had once been interwoven into the soul and spirit of human life could not be held there, but fell victim to a complete want of understanding. The common impulse and striving for the divine that showed itself in our feeling life from the 15th to the 18th and 19th centuries was sincere and genuine. Beautiful and sublime things can be found in it. Much that has come down from those times, and that is far too little noticed today, has about it quite a magic breath of the spiritual. Side by side with it, however, a seed is sprouting, a hard seed, tending to ossify, the seed of inability to understand the old spiritual truths, while at the same time it becomes more and more impossible to approach the spiritual in a way that is in right accord with the age. We come across individuals of the 18th century who speak of a destruction of all that is human and of the rise of a terrible materialism. Often it seems as though what these individuals of the 18th century say could just as well be applied to our own time, and yet it is not so. What they say does not apply to the last two-thirds of the 19th century. For in the 19th century a further stage had been reached. What was still regarded in the 18th with a certain abhorrence on account of its daimonical character has come to be taken quite as a matter of course. The people of the 19th century no longer had the power to say, quote, The Copernican paradigm is all very well, but a conception of the universe that was only able to arise because humans did not become on earth what they should have become, such a conception is revolting to us. We are deeply moved by what happened. That the earth was left without a ruler, and the rulership passed over to the unrightful lords of the world, Close quote. This expression occurs again and again in medieval writings. Continue, quote, And that then Christ left the Son and united himself with the destiny of the earth. Close quote. Only now, at the end of the 19th century, has it again become possible to look into these things with clear vision, with such clear vision as man possessed originally, only now in the age of Michael. We have spoken repeatedly of the dawn of the Michaelic age and of its character. But there are tasks that belong to this age of Michael. And it is possible now to point to these tasks after all that we have been considering in the Christmas conference and since about the evolution of spiritual vision as it has taken its course through the centuries. The end of Lecture 4